Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Stop wasting your time pricing flights and hotels on the same old sites. There is a much better way to buy business travel. The only site you need is Upside.com. I used Upside and it is a complete game changer. I have booked flights and hotels for Washington uh, and New York using it. In less than five minutes, they showed me the exact flights I was looking for, plus the big name hotels I might want to stay at. And this is actually what makes it different is it bundles the flights and hotels together. And then also it shows you kind of what other flights and hotels you could use to maybe save money that might not be the exact ones you were looking for. Um, That's the service that's like a travel agent that they offer. If you're usually booking your own flights, you have to be the one to kind of guess at what the cheaper options might be. Um, They will show it to you. And you get a gift card to places like Amazon every time you buy a trip. Bundling saves your company a lot of money and Upside gives you a gift card. Forget about how you used to buy your business trips and try Upside.com. Right now, when you use the promo code FRIENDS, you're guaranteed to get at least a $100 Amazon gift card for your first trip. That's code FRIENDS to get a $100 card free. Upside.com, the better way to buy business travel. Minimum purchase is required. See the site for complete details. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. And uh, longtime listeners may know that I sometimes describe this show as being about awkward conversations or difficult conversations. And you may also know that I get um, shit uh, from my uh, Crooked Media cohort about this. Um, the boys over at Pod Save think that that is a not great way to advertise the show because people don't want to listen to difficult conversations or awkward conversations that that's very off-putting so we had a little conference call this week and uh tossed around some other ways to think about the show and i actually had kind of a breakthrough which is i have realized what this show is really about uh the conversations part is important but maybe not the emphasis uh the conversations happen because of what the show's larger purpose is, which is to quote an early guest and friend of the pod, Jeff Chu, this show is about messy coalitions. This show is about the limits of coalitions uh, and about forming them. It is about uh, the limits of relationships and friendships and what they mean and how they can help or hurt the coalitions that we need to have. So... John, John, Tommy, my news for you, if you are listening, is the show is no longer going to be taglined um, about uh, awkward or difficult conversations. This is a show that's actually about relationships and coalitions. It's about friends like these. Two very good friends on the show today. Uh, In the second segment, I'll be catching up with Jane Koston, who is my former colleague at MTV, now a a writer and journalist in D.C. She most recently had a great piece in the New York Times Magazine, which we'll talk about a bit during her segment. 
And then uh, first segment is with Tom Nichols, who is a professor at the Naval War College uh, and a another never Trumper who I want to talk coalitions with. Um, we're going to get some perspective from him on the impact of Charlottesville on foreign policy, but then uh, delve into some of that uh, totally not awkward, but very interesting conversation um, about what are the limits of a coalition that involves progressives and never Trump folks. A last piece of news for the show is that we're going to start doing a weekly uh, letter from listeners. So if you want to be a part of that, uh, please write the show at withfriendslikepod at gmail. Uh, You might want to put something in the subject line or obviously in the body of the email that you are okay with your letter being read on the air. But we're going to start doing that. And those letters should be about the kinds of things the show tackles. Again, the limits of relationships and the possibilities of coalitions. With that, we'll get started with the show. I'm speaking with Tom Nichols. He is a professor at the Naval War College and the author of The Death of Expertise. Hi, Tom. Hi, Anna. So I wanted to have you on uh, to talk about many things. We are, we are long overdue for a conversation. Uh, but one thing I saw you bring up on the Twitter machine that I feel like has been not as um, discussed as perhaps it should be because, man, we have a lot to discuss these days <laughs> when it comes to uh, Trump and Charlottesville and the state of the nation, um, was the impact that these last few days are going to have on foreign policy and diplomacy? Yeah. Um, I, of course, everything the president says has an impact on foreign policy and diplomacy because that's the nature of being president. Everybody studies every word that comes out of your mouth. Um, But I think that the past few days have a link between what's going to happen at home and what happens abroad. And this is where I should add, by the way, I don't speak for the Navy or the the government in any way or Harvard or anybody else. is that Harvard? I, you just I, pulling that out? Like, I don't speak for Harvard uh, either. No, well, I, t- I but... teach extension. I teach at the Harvard Extension School okay. as well. Uh, so I, I, <laughs> I don't we also represent just, anybody. Should we name everyone that you don't speak for? <laughs> my, uh... my cat. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't, I don't no, speak you... for Carla. I don't speak for anybody. Okay. So. Um, I, I think um, there's a there's an issue of credibility and temperament that foreign uh, leaders are going to look at here. Because the, the problem is that when the president sets a establishes a precedent of saying, here's a very reasonable thing I'm going to say. And then a day later says, remember, when I say stuff like that, I really don't mean any of it. Uh, that causes, you know, a, a credibility issue, not just <clears throat> in American politics, because, of course, his own staff and other members of Congress, uh, including Republicans, are all reeling from this. But it does raise the question of, well, you know what? When when it, when the president speaks, does he mean what he says? Uh, you know, can and can he be triggered? Can he be made to fly into a rage? What are the things that uh, will make him act irrationally? And this is the kind of stuff that foreign uh, intelligence services and foreign analysts look at very closely. And of course, they don't look at any of this in isolation. They're going to look at this in combination with his Twitter feed, which I saw this morning was on you know full blast. Um, they're going to combine this with what they're seeing coming out of uh, leaks from the White House. I think yesterday the story on General Kelly had 17 sources. It's gotten to the point now where just to defend against any criticism, those stories, reporters are getting, you know, a dozen and a half sources at a time. Uh, and I think that does have a huge effect on foreign policy. 
I think presidents, when it comes to foreign policy, there are some very important qualities, certain amount of stoicism, certain amount of economy of words, the uh, importance of meaning what you say and saying what you mean. And I, I've been critical, just to be clear, and to give Trump the tiniest of breaks here. Uh, I, you know, I was critical of uh, President Obama. If you're going to talk about red lines, then you have to mean red lines. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was a huge failure of the Obama administration. This is that beyond all reason. Now, th this is basically saying, look, whenever I'm saying something in a much more reasonable mode, you know, wait 24 or 48 hours, because then what I really think is coming. And that it's a bad it's a bad strategy for business. It's a bad strategy for politics. It's a terrible strategy for foreign policy. And just to be clear, like we're talking here not even about the content, really. I mean, we're talking right. here about the form and format and reversals because like I was, um, you know, I have some very well-meaning <laughs> relatives who mm -hmm. just want to really they're trying they're looking for you know, ways. Yeah, but this is going to ruin Christmas. <laughs> I know. It, oh, oh boy. But one of the arguments that that I heard from my incredibly well-meaning but deluded uh, conservative relatives was uh, it shouldn't matter the way that Trump conveys information, right? Like, because this is like, let's rewind to just the first reversal, you know, on on, on Monday when he did his teleprompter, I guess Nazis are bad. I hate Nazis, right? Yeah, it doesn't work that way. And I can understand why people want it to. I mean, the the response that I got from conservative colleagues was, uh, you know, you never Trumpers are never happy. He denounced them. And right. it's like, well, OK, but that's like, you know, that that's like being married to somebody who says, uh, you know, once a week, uh, I, I'm not sure I love you or I hate you. And then, you know, when you say what they say, well, I did say I love you when we got married. You know, that <laughs> there is an earlier statement. Uh, well, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, you can't when you start walking things back, you can't just start cherry picking which things were most convenient for you to believe. But that is how people have to deal with their trying to make sense of why they support the administration at this point. But I'm even trying to make sense of kind of the, the form and format part of this. Like, I do want to dive into what his statements about, you know, Nazis and race and civil unrest mean for, for foreign policy and foreign relations. But I, I really am curious because I know you've studied his Twitter feed and you've written about the ways that um, foreign powers and specifically foreign intelligence services look at our president and what kinds of information they try to gather and some of it has to do with content, but a fair amount of it has to do with like the way that things are delivered and even tone. Right. Absolutely. So it matters that he was like reading from a teleprompter. Right. Like they take into consideration the ways that the way he talks as much as like the content. Well, the teleprompter version. Um, absolutely. The teleprompter version was, you know, Americans and I think people overseas could say, OK, this is torture for him. Mm -hmm. You know, the body language, the whole, I mean, it was, I, I was, I was like physically uncomfortable watching it mm -hmm. because it was so, you know, strained and so forth. So if I were, um, <clears throat> if I were in Moscow or Beijing or London or Paris, I'd say, okay, this was written by somebody else. This has to do with American domestic politics. This is completely irrelevant to what's actually going on to, and to what he thinks. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really a, a, a problem. Because when you start parsing and splitting apart all of these presidential statements 
you don't want an opponent to be able to say, well, I like, you know, I, I'm going to go to the tweet, tweet buffet, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or, or uh, the videotape archive, and I'm going to pick this and this and this, and that's going to be how I'm going to deal with the United States. That's, a, that's very dangerous. The, pre- the president's messages have to be consistent. And like I said, I think, you know, the lost art of a certain amount of uh, stoicism here uh, is really important. And let's just stay uh, on form for a little while longer and the form of Tuesday's press conference, his attitude, his demeanor, um, how were foreign, you know, powers looking at that? Um, I, I, well, you know, I, I personally found it unsettling uh, and it, you know, makes you wonder how much information uh, can the can the president take in and where does he get his information? I mean, there, it became this kind of strange, um, you know, the, the president always reminds me of kind of, you know, your angry grandpa watching TV in the next room while, you know, yelling at the TV while everybody's trying to have dinner. Um, you know, and you say, boy, I wish he wouldn't watch that show or I wish he wouldn't get his information there. And that the form of that, I think, suggests that he can be easily sidetracked with whatever he saw last. And if I were a foreign power, I would think about that. I mean, I think about, you know, where do you put out information? Where do you hope it catches the president's eye? What what things does he watch? Because clearly the last thing he saw will come flying out of him in a rage. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it also says that he's easily provoked. I mean, that really wasn't that adversarial. I mean, you know, you and I have been watching presidential press conferences all our lives. That that wasn't even close to the most adversarial no. environment. No, it wasn't. Uh, uh, that, you know, a pre- I mean, he was standing in a building he owns, for one thing, <laughs> uh, you know, in his hometown. I mean, it's not like uh, the old days of, you know, Sam Donaldson yelling at him uh, under the portico in the White House, uh, yelling at Reagan. Uh, this this was, you know, not the worst situation he could be in. And again, it tells a, a foreign opponent how, you know, in a negotiation, how do you make him mad? What does he look like when he's mad? Because that's another important thing. What are the kind of tells? If you think of international relations as like poker, mm-hmm. the president it puts out a big schematic of all his tells every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, gosh, it, was it some someone I can't remember who said something about a president you can bait with a tweet? Isn't someone yep. you huh? Who was that? Yeah. There's some oh, hmm, some some lady, some, uh, some, some lady some I remember, lady. but she had yeah. problems with her emails. So I don't take yeah. her seriously. Uh, I do now want to get to let's get to the actual, you know, the thing that's the more serious part of this discussion. Well, I guess it's actually both pretty serious parts of it. The, the form and the content are both important parts of, of what's happened and what it means for America on the world stage. But the actual content, of course, is of dire importance as well. Um, right. What our allies are seeing and what our enemies are seeing. Can you talk about that? Uh, well, for one thing, I think, you know, it, it it's a strange position for a conservative like me to be in. Because I've spent most of my time saying, listen, I don't really care what the rest of the world thinks of American domestic politics. You know, um, I'm against the death penalty. But when the European Union says you Americans can should be against the death penalty, I say things like mind your own business. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's OK. Listen, it's OK if I pick on my other you know, my fellowship. But, you know, this is not you. You go about your business and, right. and uh, keep that to yourself. Uh, on the other hand, you know, now we have the, the problem that the president of the United States 
has defended uh, Nazis in public. And, you know, there are other countries in the world that, that are going to look at that a little more closely. I don't know. I'm going to pick one at random. Germany, <laughs> uh, um, you know, France. Yeah, there are places that still have England, pretty strong, maybe. Yeah, you know, living experience with Nazis. Uh, um, but uh, now I don't think that anybody is going to take away from this that the president is a Nazi. And I, I personally don't believe the president is a Nazi. I think, you know, that's going a little far. Um, Isn't it I sad, by it, the way? Oh, my God. Did you do you believe what you just said? Like right, you had uh, to say yes, that you had to say I, be- I do not believe the president is a Nazi. Um, ah! <laughs> but but I you know I, I found myself in the same position years ago when my conservative uh, friends would get on me about Obama who I opposed and wrote about right. and did not think was a good president but I always found myself saying guys he's not a communist right you know he's not a socialist um, but yeah this is this is the furthest out I've ever seen anybody you know that that in common conversation we sort of stroke our chins and say well I, just for the record I don't think the president's a Nazi yeah uh, but I I I think that. He has, I think it's a signal to a lot of our friends and allies uh, that he is a man right out of kind of 1962. Mm. That, uh, you know, to, to, you got to, where I grew up in the 60s, Trump doesn't seem that different than the guy who's guys who used to hang around my brother's bar by the railroad tracks, having shots and beers and complaining about how, you know, uh, you know, the yeah, the civil rights movement is a good thing. But, you know, those rioters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's a throwback to an earlier time that we should have been done with 50 years ago. Um, and, and I think it's this kind of casually um, um, prejudiced and bigoted approach that says that this is really a man out of his time. And I think our enemies say here, you know, because, of course, places like China, Russia, they they don't care about. American race relations and that they may see an opportunity to say, hey, that's a great icebreaker. I mean, you know, the next time Putin sees him, that's a great icebreaker. Hey, those minorities, huh? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's up with that? Am I right? Done? <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, because that that uh, they don't they don't have to be concerned about that. So I think it does. There is no oh, world like, in which this does any good. Doesn't it also communicate to places that are human rights abusers? I mean, if they didn't already know, you know, I, I don't this is a president so, that doesn't give a shit. Because they know, really bad human rights abusers know that they're in a different league than, you know, casually bigoted old guys from Queens. Okay. You know, they they know they're playing in the majors and that uh, that's just that, that, I mean, they, they know that there are people like that. They know that it's not going to really, you know, alter American policy all that much. Um, certainly not at the United Nations. Um, but I suppose it gives them a little bit of schadenfreude and mm-hmm. it gives them the propaganda tool. This is probably the more important point. It gives them the propaganda tool to, to play the whataboutism game. When someone says you're a human rights abuser and they can sort of, you know, shrug nonchalantly and say, well, your president speaks well of Nazis. Of course, Trump himself has played that game. Right. Well, whataboutism is the American national sport now. And it drives me crazy because, of course, uh, I grew up in and started my career during the Cold War, where the Soviet answer to everything was, and you lynch Negroes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a common Russian expression. We'd say, well, you know, you treat Jews poorly, you, that you're a, a prison camp of a country. And they'd say, uh-huh, but you lynch Negroes. Well, to have Republicans playing that game against each other 
not just against, you know, Democrats or other countries in the world, when Republicans were the cold warriors who used to have to take the lynching slam uh, in dealing with Soviets. I mean, I got that one myself in the Soviet Union. You know, you you kill Indians, you lynch uh, blacks um, is just to me stomach turning that we would even go down this road. But yes, the president played the whataboutism game, and I think he played it very poorly. He also did it, though. I was going to say he did it about Putin and he he used Putin's line about the U.S. Yes, that's the, the US. to me, that's the worst one that I mean, as as nauseating as the Charlottesville uh, event, uh, the comments about that event were um, to say that, you know, well, we have killers in this country and we're no better than Russia. That I uh, that that one. And, and again, I'm not suggesting to anybody that uh, they have to feel about it the way I do. But you know, having spent a good part of my life trying to deal with the Soviet Union and Russia, uh, that one hit home, and it was I took that one very personally. So, and we should I should remind people that happened during the campaign. I, I was during one of his interviews, I believe that that uh, maybe sixty minutes. I don't want to get too far out on a limb about it, but um, right. yeah, he said that we have killers too. America's not so great. Uh, yeah, America's you know? not so sure. Great. Russia's made mistakes, but America's not so wonderful. And I mean, I just. I I felt like I watched, you know, 50 years of not just Republican, bipartisan, 50 years of bipartisan uh, American foreign policy just go up in flames for no reason other than that um, the candidate needed something to say at that moment. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. Today, over a million people use the amazing Ring video doorbell to help protect their homes. Ring knows home security begins at the front door, but it doesn't end there. So now they're extending that same level of security to the rest of your home with the Ring Floodlight Cam. Just like Ring's amazing doorbell, the Floodlight Cam is a motion-activated camera and a floodlight that connects right to your phone with HD video and two-way audio that lets you know the moment anyone steps onto your property. See and speak to visitors, even set off an alarm right from your phone. With Ring's floodlight cam, when things go bump in the night, you'll immediately know what it is. Whether you're home or away, the Ring floodlight cam lets you keep an eye on your home from anywhere. Ring floodlight offers the ultimate in-home security with high visibility floodlights and a powerful HD camera that puts security in your hands. With Ring, you are always home. Save up to $150 on a Ring of Security kit when you go to ring.com slash friends. Again, that's ring.com slash friends. You are a, a never Trumper conservative. You've kind of laid out some of your con- conservative bona fides a- as we've been chatting. Uh, before we move on to some maybe um, slightly more challenging conversations, uh, I want to I want to actually maybe have a discussion with you that might get a little uncomfortable, but I'm going to stay on some common ground right now uh, and ask you, so can you give me any intel about what's going on um, with your fellow Republicans right now. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of asking everyone what we're all fine. Okay, we're good. Fine. Thank all right. you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> Remain calm. All is well. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I um I feel like uh I, I feel like um you'd think that at this point. You know, the never Trumpers would be saying, I told you so a little more loudly. Um, they're, they're not. I think, you know, we're all patriots and um, we're all, you know, deeply concerned. I mean, this is this really isn't the time for playing gotcha. 
Um, I think for the people, then this is just my personal read, you know, anecdotally, I think for people that went hard in, you know, went all in and hard over for, for the president uh, beginning last summer and right through November, it, it feels to me like they're going through the stages of grief mm. that, you know, they started out with everything is fine. No, no, no. It's, you know, the, they started with denial, right. Of, uh, you know, he, he's going to pivot. It's all good. Uh, and then it was, you know, anger, you people, you know, you just hate him. Uh, and then, you know, we got to the bargaining of, well, he did say this one thing. How about if we focus on that instead of, you know, the thing he said the next day. Um, but now it, it almost feels like things are quieting down. I think the Charlottesville remarks were a turning point where, you know, we really are getting, at least for some of those folks, you're getting closer to acceptance of saying, this is just awful. It's the way it is. Our optimism is gone, but now we have to kind of slog it out for the next, uh, you know, three years. And this is, you know, we're, but the, the kind of grandiose promises and, you know, uh, making everything great again, I, I don't sense that. I sense a more subdued atmosphere. And, and again, even among those of us on the other side of that issue within the conservative movement, you're not getting a lot of, I mean, I've done it a couple of times to say, well, you know, because I'm tend to be a sarcastic, snarky guy to begin with. And I've been saying, well, if only someone could have warned you that this could happen. Um, but even there, you know, it's almost like none of us, there's really no pleasure in it. And I think we're all kind of settling down into the, well, you know, now what sort of uh, mode. And I think that's that's about that's about the only thing we can do. Um, I, I, I think the other thing, at least for folks like me, is that I've been getting mildly irritated with our democratic friends who here saying, we so, go this is so, actually what i wanted so to talk to you about it, right this, this is it now we can impeach him and i can't you know i said to somebody the other day you can't impeach somebody for being annoying or offensive mm -hmm. um you know there are other things going on and you know this whole talk about the 25th amendment is just silly uh that's not going to happen either so i i think a, a kind of rea realism is setting in my my sense of the conservatives is kind of defeated um, a kind of defeated miasma of realism is setting in around them. Um, and, you know, hopefully that'll settle in among the Democrats as well, who uh, need to let go of these kind of lightning strike uh, theories about what's going to happen next. Yeah, for what it's worth, I mean, I, I think he's a moral monster um, and a terrible president. Uh, but I agree that there's no um, duis ex Congress Right. Um, I guess it'd be Congress ex machina um, would be the right phrase here, um, at least with this Congress um, and, and yeah. this cabinet. And, and this is something people have to remember about all that 25th Amendment talk. You'd have to get two thirds of Congress. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, not, so, not, not with this one. Know. No, um, I mean, I think that we have a new ball game potentially in 2018. Uh but for now, if Democrats don't screw it up. OK, here's where we get to where I want to talk to you that may, may <laughs> we may fight. Um, so I'm, I'm I feel bad because you have come to, you know, you're a cat person. Um, you uh, are snarky. Um, you're a never Trump person. You remind me much of probably our mutual friend, Rick Wilson. Uh, so I, I'm just loath to bring this up, but I feel like I need to because I saw you on Twitter uh, kind of roll your eyes in a metaphorical sense, perhaps you were doing it in real life as well, at some of the rhetoric being used by progressives um, around Charlottesville 
I think specifically in the ways that they are tying the events of Charlottesville and Trump's um, rhetoric to the history of the Republican Party, modern Republican Party. Yes. Okay. So your your take uh, on that seems Charles to, Blow in particular, yes. I think, was, the, was who I was reacting to. Yes. So you, tell me what tell me what you are thinking there, and then we may have to fight and not be friends. But I'll, I'll I'm hoping well, let's that we just can start. Let's start by remembering our common bond of cats. Yes. <laughs> Not though cats aren't, you know, cats don't give a shit. So, um, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure about that, but you know, my, I think my cat has sort of centrist Republican tendencies, but I, you know, I respect her privacy. I think they're anarchists, um, honestly, but anyway, uh, let's well, move on. I think what I, what I took offense to, um, was this notion that, you know, that, that, um, what I thought Charles Blow was doing, and maybe for people who didn't see it, he basically said, look, this is just part of the long march of Republican racism that's always been there. It's, you know, kind of woven into America and particularly into that part of America. So how can anybody be because, you know, when people say, well, you can't be surprised that Donald Trump talks this way. I think Blow was basically saying you can't be surprised when anybody talks this way, especially Republicans. And uh, I said, okay, this struck me as a political kind of a political strategy to say Trump is sinking under the weight of these comments. Let me just see if I can take him like an anvil and tie him to every conservative who ever lived, Mm -hmm. which I think is deeply unfair, Um, you know, because that that's like me saying, well, you know, because remember the whataboutism game here that the that the Republicans have tried to play with this. Well, you know, Robert Byrd was in the KKK. The Democrats were the party of the KKK. Look, you know, we're talking about now. And I think this notion of over I think this was to use a word that liberals love to use. This was overreach uh, to say, I, I have this moment where I can stick Trump on every Republican there ever was, every conservative there ever was to kind of strike a big sweeping blow for the left here, for liberalism, for the Democratic Party, for whoever he, you know, whatever he thought he was doing. And I thought it was, I thought it was unnecessarily hyperbolic. And I thought it was unfair um, because it basically says there have never been any conservatives, any Republicans who've ever been involved in, you know, ever cared about civil rights. Um, forget about slavery and Lincoln and all that stuff that, that you know, nothing happened before 10 years ago. Mm. And I found it to be just deeply unfair. I understand, you know, even um, even a president that I admire, like Ronald Reagan. I, look, I understand the point of going to Philadelphia, Mississippi, you know, when Reagan did yeah. it. it. There was that, there, there was, you know, an outreach to disaffected whites. There was this kind of pandering in the 80s to evangelicals. Uh, who had some pretty, some of whom managed to, oh, you know, the Venn diagram of the overlap there with with uh, retrograde attitudes about race. There, there's no doubt about it. And the war on drugs is uh, is very difficult to to forget for a lot of people too. So well, and you know, as you know, and I've written about this. Um, I think that the current Republican uh, approach, or at least the the Trump administration's approach, and candidate Trump's approach during the campaign, was definitively racist mm-hmm. to say. You know, when black people were taking drugs in the 70s, the answer was uh, tough love in jail. And when a bunch of white people in, in the heartland are taking drugs, well, now it's empathy and understanding and rehab and, 
you know, there, there was no doubt that we had a racial double standard about the war on drugs because now uh, drug people who take drugs are victims when they used to be criminals. I mean, I've lived long enough to see that happen. With all that said, I thought what Blow did was incendiary and unfair, and it did make me roll my eyes and say, you know, this is, as conservatives often say, this is how you got Trump, because you, you tarred an entire class of people as saying, everybody who's to the right of me is a racist. And, you, you know, you say that enough times, people shrug and say, okay, I, you know, I give up. And I think on this, the name I'll bring into it, the person I think has a great answer to this, who is not a conservative, is Mark Alilla, mm -hmm. who's, you know, uh, who I've been reading and who just did an interview with Rod Dreher. You know, and Lilla, I think, has made a great point that, that Democrats have to stop. Then liberals, if they want to start recapturing that kind of mass of the, you know, the average American person, they have to stop doing this kind of ugly, divisive stuff in response to ugly, divisive stuff. Um, so mm. that's that's what set me off the other day. I I can hear it. Uh, I, I want to really zero in on a word you used um, a lot when you were talking there, which is unfair. Which is really mm. striking to me because that's a really personalized term, I think. Uh, it, I hear it in your voice and your reaction to that, like that felt unfair to you. Like you felt like you were personally indicted by him because you are a conservative, you know, you have, you admire other conservatives and you felt that in his statements. I'm, he was, and I'm a middle, I'm a middle-aged white male. And you're a middle-aged white male. And that felt unfair. And I guess what I want to do is challenge you a little bit um, in thinking that unfair is a not helpful way to, to, is a metric. <laughs> <laughs> in talking about politics. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that. I mean, I, I, you know, I think, you know, an educated middle-aged, you know, white academic saying, oh, that felt unfair. You know, that's that the sympathy level anybody should have for that is roughly zero. Right. Um, and I think you captured my reaction better when you said you could hear me rolling my eyes. Uh, exasperated was a, was actually a word, what? was the feeling I had right at the moment more than unfair. If I can put you on the couch just a little bit, it feels like there's two sure. tracks of your reaction here. I think part of it is exasperated and you're kind of wearing your pundit hat and saying like, this is not a useful way to talk about politics right now. Right. Right. And I kind of want to get off of like talking about Charles Blow in particular, but talking about what I've heard from a lot of like, um, black political commentators. I think he's, he's using, he was using a framing that a lot of, a lot of people, including myself, actually, not just, not just black political commentators, but I'm using some of the same framing that he is, but particularly black people on television right now have been pointing out the continuity line between a lot of GOP policies and what's happened in Charlottesville and what's ha and what happened with Trump's words. And so I, I hear you sort of saying on one hand, um, with a pundit sort of cap on, I don't know what those look like. They're probably ugly. Uh, <laughs> a bit to be very nerdy, very nerdy hats, maybe a deer stalker. Um, yeah. This is not a helpful way to frame things if you want white people to listen to you. And then I also hear you kind of embodying the white person <laughs> who's kind of not who, who's so put off by these statements that you can't hear him. Because I think that there's because I agree with you that on some level to try to say, you know, um, to draw draw that through line between uh, past GOP policies and Trump and Charlottesville uh, is something that's going to be off-putting to people who might be potential allies who are conservative or Republicans. Um, right. And so I think we on the left should have some thoughtfulness about the way that we talk about this stuff. 
And the best term I've heard recently is that we need to remember to maintain a permission structure for our allies. Mm. We need to remember to maintain some kind of path for people to say, I agree with you and I want to be on your side. Right. Um, Right. In this, on these particular issues. But I also think that while I don't, I think there is a through line here. You know, like not that every Republican ever has been racist or that every Republican or conservative policy has is racist, but that we can't when we're talking about the racism that that Trump represents, it does come from somewhere. And there's a reason why he's in the Republican Party and not the Democratic Party. There's a reason why he ran on that side. If he had tried that same rhetoric (laughs) as a Democrat, it wouldn't have worked. Well, let me let me well, hang on, because I'm going to throw one penalty flag about this and remind you that back in the day, Donald Trump was a Democrat. Right. But he didn't win. As, he to, didn't win. the He didn't win the nomination of the Democratic Party. Fair enough. Although I still think that the disaffected working class whites who went for him were going to go for him no matter. They don't oh, care sure. about party labels. Sure. I mean, I think that his margin of victory was provided by people who um you know, who would have who would have gone either way. But I grant you in today's Democratic Party, uh, it would have been tougher. But that's why I said, you know, to me, Donald Trump was the were the kind of guys that I grew up around in 1968, um, who were all Democrats, sure. who were all blue collar guys, who were all banging shots and beers and saying, uh, you know, that Martin Luther King is a great guy. Uh, sure, sure. I can accept that. And then they would drop an end bomb right after it. Right. Um but and they're I not Democrats that anymore. Okay. But they're, and they're not Democrats anymore. But this notion that somehow Trump is the avatar of the modern Republican Party. Well, he is literally the avatar of the modern Republican Party. Um, you know, he is he is my president. He's the president, our president of the United States. But I as a party figure, I still think of Trump as a recent arrival who kind of, you know, jumped on the bus and said, uh, you can't drop below 50 miles an hour because uh, we've got to just keep driving. But he did he did win the nomination and and Cong- congressmen have been have in elected officials are supporting him because they feel that he, you know, up until this point, they felt like he's the best chance to enact certain policies. And I know that you're a sort of criminal refor- criminal justice reform minded guy. So I, I don't feel like I'm going to get pushback from you on this. And I also know that Democrats have supported terrible criminal justice policies. But it is the Republican Party. That uh, yeah, I don't want I was just going to say, don't don't make me remind you of, nope. you know, who, who led the charge. Uh, on oh, that one. I'm not going to. But who's maintaining it? Right. I agree. I, right? I mean, this is, a, you know, this is a, a and, and some of this is actually a regional problem, because maybe part of the reason I bristle is that while I'm a conservative, I'm a New England conservative. Uh I'm part of a, you know, breed that's been hunted to extinction, Um, you know, from the old New England Republican Party that doesn't much exist anymore. I mean, I, you know, the the past people like me, the future is, I guess, you know, guys like Corey Lewandowski, because that Mm. might be what the, you know, well, I mean, he grew up an hour away from me. Um, You know, now, on the other hand, Charlie Baker of Massachusetts is the most popular governor uh, a Republican who came out and he pretty forcefully condemned the president's remarks. Um, I, I, I think what I object to is this notion that um, that almost that political movements are irredeemable because of the worst example in any of them. And I and conservatives play this game as well. Right. 
I agree. That, that when, when you, you know, they say to you, well, so, you know, Anna, you're basically no different than Al Sharpton. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, come on, you know, let's, is, are we having a real conversation or are we doing, are we going to play that game? Well, but, and, um, but I want to point out is that I don't, I don't want to pin you when we, when we want to move the conversation from Trump to the modern Republican Party, I don't want to so much. I want to, I want us to be able to both agree. Okay, Trump is terrible. You know, <laughs> racism and Nazis are bad. Um, yeah. But I also hope that that I can get some of my friends on the other side of the aisle to look at things like um, voter ID laws, to look at things like uh, criminal justice, to look at things like um, you know uh, redistricting issues, and right. notice, or at least have their minds open. To the ways that those policies have enabled the Republican Party to become a place where you can have a Jeff Sessions and a Trump um, and the people who claim to follow them, people like David Duke, be home in the Republican Party. Uh, And I think, you know, the better approach here and, you know, maybe I keep defaulting to that issue of uh, strategery is uh, I, I think that African-Americans looking at the composition of the administration could say, look, you need to show, you know, conservatives who are concerned about this, have some empathy. Imagine how this looks and feels, you know, to, to uh, yeah. people of color. Yeah. And I, that, but to say, you know, you guys are bad. You've always been bad. None of you are good. The whole thing is poisoned. It, it, I, I mean, I felt aside, I, you know, aside like from that. being kind of nettled by it, I felt um, it made me those kinds of comments make me feel hopeless to say, you know what, I, we can't have this conversation. I get it. There's nowhere to go, you know, uh, and, it, and it it almost makes me sort of say, well, you know, we're at the end of the road. We're at the end of the conversation. Yes, Tom, imagine being part of a group that's judged for um, what other people do. Um, and had sweeping generalizations made about you. Of course. And being told that you can't amount to anything because of an identity that you have. Imagine. And having that a president who is on record and having a president of the United States, I'll just pile on here as on record saying, you know, uh, I don't want black guys counting my money. Right. right. I, 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 I get that. But I think the answer to that is not to turn to every uh, conservative and say, you're just like him. And I would say that, that I think what's really interesting here stopper. is that what I think is really interesting here. And again, I want to be friends, but I want to point out to you, I think you're taking what people are saying and interpreting it incredibly personally and directly, which you which is understandable. But I think well, the critique, I, I have to take people on their words. Right. And I mean, you know, it's but I think uh, the critique to, here is actually of policy. Right. And it's not of you personally. It's of look at these structural things that the Republican Party has done. To support a structure that enables well, now, wait, at white the risk supremacy. of not being friends, I think you're. I think the re, the comments that spurred my comments, you're retconning them a little, oh, a little bit, bit and cleaning them up and turning them into a much more reasonable critique than the one that was actually made. Because I think I think that what you're saying is a much more reasonable platform for discussion than the kind of sweeping condemnation that I was reacting to. But of course, I am not a black man who just watched white supremacists march. Um, right. Without hoods in a southern city in 2017. Right. So I'm a little probably less triggered, as they say. <laughs> well, and, you know, it may, and it may be uh, it may be an argument for not having instantaneous live punditry 
24-7. But, and you know, I wasn't, to, to just back up from this a little bit, I mean, I wasn't personally, I didn't stand up and say, I'm personally offended at these yeah. remarks. I Again, I was mostly, it was almost existential, where I just kind of threw up my hands and said, okay, you know, and in an earlier time, when I was a younger man, um, I, I would... Uh, I withdrew from a lot of those conversations um, by basically saying, you know, I give up because I didn't see because we didn't have a president who was kind of, you know, pushing the envelope of these issues. And I said, well, nothing's really that bad. And I'm just, I can't I'm tired of these conversations and I'm tired of them, you know, being laid at my feet. Because the other thing, if you want to do the psychoanalysis, is you have to remember as well, <clears throat> my personal background is um, kind of the poorer edge of the working class. Right. So, um, you know, everybody, there are, there are all kinds of tough stories and sometimes this notion that, well, you're no, you, you as a group are no different than, you know, a billionaire saying racist things it, aside from the like leave aside the unfairness, cause we're both grownups and we, you know, we both deal with politics and I, I always try to operate on the Michael Corleone rule that it's, that it's just business. It's not personal. Um, but um, it does, it induces this kind of, yeah, kind of hopelessness that says we are never going to bridge that gap if, uh, this is the only way we can talk to each other. And, uh, part of the reason you and I are having this conversation is because I haven't given up hope. Uh, but in an earlier time, definitely, I just threw up my hands and said, you know, I'm going to go deal with, uh, foreign policy and nuclear weapons and the Soviet Union, because I don't want to have any of these discussions about. You found foreign policy and nuclear weapons, a more hopeful area of work. <laughs> You know, in some ways, I actually thought that, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, averting uh, global Holocaust was a little easier than trying to unscrew domestic problems at home. Yeah. Well, um, let's leave on the hopeful note. Uh, we did manage. I think we're still pals. Uh, of course. New friends. Um, uh, we both still love cats. Uh, and I find your cat very, very beautiful cat. What, Carla? Uh, is her name Carla? Yes, yes. Carla. So people Carla should Tortelli Nichols. Probably people should check out your Twitter feed, which is uh, Radio Free Tom, and also your book, The Death of Expertise, just came out uh, last spring uh, from Oxford, and is it's about why people don't listen to facts, why don't people listen to experts, why do people f read fake news and uh, believe in crazy conspiracy theories. And we'll have to talk about that specifically more sometime. But um, I really appreciate you coming on, uh, and uh, we will we will chat again. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. So, I think you guys know how much I love Blue Apron. It unironically and quite literally saved my marriage. Um, I'm so excited to have them as a sponsor on the show because I had Blue Apron for dinner last night. And I had Blue Apron for dinner last night because my husband agreed to make dinner because we always still have this little bit of a complex like calculus about whose turn it is. Um, he was really tired the other night and I said I would make dinner. But the thing is, it's not a big deal anymore um, when we trade off these dinner nights because we know that we're both going to be getting about the same amount of work, no matter what the recipe is, because we're using Blue Apron. And, you know, Blue Apron recipes, some of them are, you know, slightly more difficult or technical than the others. But your Mac's going to be spending about 30 or 40 minutes in the kitchen, and you know you have the ingredients on hand. So, like, when we trade one night for another, there's, like, no real drama involved. It is the number one fresh ingredient recipe delivery service in the country. Probably not everyone loves it the way I do. 
but it is the number one delivery service in the country. Its mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. You can choose from a variety of recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. They are not repeated within a year, so you will never get bored. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. John and I don't eat a lot of red meat, so we get uh, mainly fish and pork and vegetarian dishes. And Blue Apron has several delivery options, so you can choose what best fits your needs. And there is no weekly commitment. You only get deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-proportioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Just slight sort of, you know, pro tip. Sometimes you have to preheat the oven. I think they do not count that in the 40 minutes because it definitely kind of ups the time. But it is 40 minutes or less for the actual prep of ingredients. Uh, I used to kind of think that it was a little bit longer than that, but I've gotten better at chopping and whatnot. So really, it's 40 minutes or less. This week's feature meals include basil pesto chicken with summer vegetable panzanilla. Actually, I think we had that. The panzanilla is the bread salad. It's delicious. Uh, check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash friends like. Not just friends, but friends like. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash friends like. Blue Apron. Unironically, a better way to cook. Hello, Jane. Coastal. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay, no, really. Uh, how are you? I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm largely okay. All right. In Trump-adjusted terms, you're doing all right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because I've been thinking about you. I was wondering. I'm okay. <laughs> We've been, uh, you and I, deprived of our main writing platform a couple months yes. ago. Uh, so I don't have such a, you know, finger on how you're you're thinking about things all the time. So I, the reason I wanted to talk to you is I am curious. What did you make of the past five days? It's not great, Anna. It's not great. <laughs> Your professional opinion? Not great. That would be yeah, yeah. That's uh, not great. Um, I think the biggest. I think the thing is that like. It's been interesting to me that, you know, I think that we can all, this is just one area that I've been thinking about a lot, um, is it's very interesting to see Trump pivot towards not just his base, but his Twitter base. Not his, like, I voted for him and I live in Milwaukee and, you know, I don't get online much, but he seemed, you know, I don't like that Hillary Clinton and he seemed like he might know how to bring back jobs. No, 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 no. That's not who he's pivoting to. He's pivoting to, like, angry Twitter. Pepe. And I'm like, you know, the vast majority of Americans are not on Twitter. The vast majority of Americans who are on Twitter don't post very often. And the vast majority of the Americans who post a lot on Twitter are not angry politics posters. And yet he's like, that's the base I'm going for. Um, There is a solid Twitter follow. um, I believe the username is something like Kilgore Trout or something like that. And he was noting that, like, by really sticking to the statue issue, especially after Saturday, like, do you really think that tax reform is going to happen in September? Mm -hmm. Do you really think that conversations about, like, bringing up health care again are going to happen? Like, when you're he just decided that, like, ah, I'm going to fight Jeff Flake and Mitch McConnell, which I was like, you do, you, dude, you know. (laughs) 
if that's what you want to get into, whatever. But it's just interesting to see pivoting towards a base that is, like, not that big. You know, like, most people don't, aren't this. Like, most people are not having these angry, virulent conversations on the internet about heritage, not, you know, not hate. And yet he's like, no, that's that's who I want to talk to. That's my base. And it's interesting because um, there was a National Review post recently that was basically like, you know, if he weren't president, he'd just be shit posting in the comments of Breitbart.com. OK, but he won the presidency by being the Breitbart shit poster, by actually having a Breitbart shit poster as his, you know, de facto right. campaign manager. And, and I, I will that point that... out, this is an important, I think, I mean, I love your take. And I think that in some ways you're right. Like he is pivoting to this, the Pepe's, you know, but last poll I saw this morning, 67% of Republicans agree with the way he's handling Charlottesville. That's not a, that's not the Pepe's. That is. Uh, it's interesting. Um, so one of our uh, former colleagues, RIP. MTV we have so News. many former um, colleagues. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, Ezekiel brought up that the question being asked was not, should we put these statues in a museum or should we put these statues away because they're, you know, the statues of fucking traitors? It was like, should we put the statues, should we get rid of the statues because people are offended? Right. And so I think one, I think that that through line within the, that particular polling question was very much like made to make some people be like, well, you know, I don't want people feelings. to just throw them into the moon or something because some people are snowflakes. I don't think like I feel like that particular polling line is not that effective. But also the fact that like I think that, you know, of course, Republicans might support him in the polling question, but also the fact that like. Has anything happened? Like, you know, how's that wall going? Wall has, going? Has any, yeah, you know, how's a wall? Oh, how's a, <laughs> I was like, how about wall go? I was like, is that like Waldo's brother? Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Remember yeah. that whole thing? No, it's wall. interesting because that, uh, the wall, right? That, yeah, that. Remember that? Yeah, that thing. Well, that Mexico's going to pay be like for it. Fifty feet, billion feet tall. Um. It's interesting because I think that, you know, you are right that he ran as a shit poster, but he also ran as a shit poster who was also running for sixth grade class president and was going to give us all pizza and cupcakes. Right. And none of that has happened. It's interesting because I really feel like after the, you know, the health health care, whatever that was, went down because of John McCain. It's like he just gave up on like policy stuff that was like hard Oh, I mean, he's never done a hard thing in his life. He only a human being only has so much, you know, uh, battery to them, right? They only only can do so much. So it's true. It's true. That's why exercise is bad. Exercise is bad, and so is working hard on anything. You should only do what is easy. So he's going to exactly. shitpost. But I actually want to. So that sixty-seven percent of Republicans who approve of the way he's handling Charlottesville—that was not in response to a question about the statues. That sixty-seven percent was actually a response to the question: Do you approve of how the president's response to Charlottesville? So, see, that also lends itself to how much did you know about what happened in Charlottesville? Um, I, Noah Rothman, who uh, writes for Commentary, brought yeah, up that friend of the pod, actually. Yes. Uh, brought up that, you know, if you saw that press conference and you didn't know that, you know, there was a rally on Friday in which neo-Nazis were chanting, Jews will not replace us. And then Trump is saying that, you know, I'm sure like that there were very nice people on both sides. That might sound true. I think that it goes to a sense of 
you know, once again, as we saw in 2015 and 2016, there are a lot of people who, for a completely understandable reasons, you know, on a Friday night are not going to be following Twitter coverage of a neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And so when it's, you know, when it's brought up, you know, when it sounds like, oh, there were bad, you know, good people on both sides and violence is bad. Like that sounds enough like something that seems viable if you're not following it closely. I'm going to be real honest, Jane. I did not expect to be in the position of me arguing to you that uh, this is bad and Trump is um, I'm saying that that Trump is looks like he's going to be fine. And you're saying you think that actually he's making a mistake in the way he's positioning himself. I think he's making a mistake in positioning himself, especially by the fact that, you know, yours is a more optimistic take. This is where I'm finding some cognitive dissonance because you, my friend Jane, are not someone I associate with, you know, butterflies and sunshine and glass half full. But you're you're the one who's saying here. No, I'm I'm mildly optimistic is too optimistic a term. I'm trying to find (laughs) it like, you know, if there's like a level has water in it. The glass definitely has water in it. Okay. Because I think that the, you know, the issue at hand is that by continuing to discuss this particular issue uh-huh. and just go on and on and on about it, like, it really is indicative, you know, already, like, on so many different issues. Like, for instance, um, Trump will pay out the, um, you know, the, like, the September Obamacare payments. Mm-hmm. You threatened he wouldn't, but he definitely will. Yeah. Like healthcare reform, I mean, and I put reform in quotes right. because it's ACA like, repeal. Yes, exactly. That that's kind of dead. Oh yeah. It's it's dead. And like and then there's this whole idea of like, oh, we're gonna pivot. They're gonna to put up a statue reform. to it. That's how dead it is. That's how it's bad basically. they lost. They're gonna yes, put up yeah. statues. <laughs> exactly. Because then fifty years we're gonna argue about that too. And then, you know, this whole idea that like, oh, we're going to talk about tax reform. Do you really like, you know, when Paul Ryan comes out for an interview on which he's supposed to be talking about his brand new tax plan, do you think anyone's going to ask him about it? No. No one wants to talk about tax reform. Everyone wants to talk about how these people are friends with fucking Nazis. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, if you and especially because now Trump has effectively tied himself to the Tiki Torch awful Nazis. And. You know, if you tr- trying to pivot from that, especially when now it's, you know, when Republicans are criticized, like I'm really looking forward to when Trump just goes all out against like Ted Cruz, who he does, you know, who he's already accused his father of killing JFK. So where where else do we have left to go? Like this Zodiac could, you know, killer. This Trump is, gets all of his news from the Internet. He is going basically. to accuse Ted Cruz of being Zodiac killer. That ha- yes, that is the next logical step. Oh, it decidedly is. And all of this is going to happen at a time where, you know, it's it's interesting because someone has brought up that, like, if the economy were not doing so well, and it's still, you know, it's still Obama's economy largely, like, this would be more of, like, this would not, this would be even more of a problem than it is currently. But just the fact that this is what we're talking about and not like pivoting to tax reform, like the no, ta- like already there are a bunch of people saying that September is, if August is bad for Trump, September is going to be way worse. Okay. Because that's none of that's going to happen. And so it's interesting to, you know, someone, I can't remember who it was, but uh, someone was talking about like they'd never seen a lame duck president in his first year in office. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, I think so. Let's let's just disentangle a couple things here, which is like I feel like you're doing a pretty straight political calculus analysis, which is that, you know, Trump has made a tactical error in doing this because he just on in the strict terms of his own party's goals, he is becoming less able to obtain them. Right. Like. He, he, you're right. I mean, someone said he has zero friends in the Senate right now, which is kind of an, another amazing statement to make, right? We, the last person right. had zero friends in the Senate was Ted Cruz. So right. he and Ted, and Ted Cruz is a weirdo, right? Who collects soup cans, <laughs> right? And the, the bones of small children, but exactly. And uh, I think that 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 goes to another point that at this point, you know, Republicans don't want to audibly stand up for him unless you're someone like you know. Governor Paula Page and are insane. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that you're getting to a point at which um, I can't remember. I think it may have been Rich Lowry writing for Politico. You're getting to a point at which like if Republican senators are asked to come to the White House, they might say no because it looks bad. Yeah. And like it's just interesting to see this level of just, you know, you even have like the governor of Texas, who is not a terrific human being, being like, oh, no. Neo-Nazis are where I draw the line, which I was like, see, that was easy. Normal people, for normal people, neo-Nazis are kind of like, well, you know, it's the Indiana Jones rule. You just draw that line and then punch them in the face. Right. So this is the strict political calculus part of it, right? He has made a tactical error in in doing this because he's going to have a harder time fulfilling his legislative and other political goals. Okay. Right. Is it worth talking about kind of the larger, more existential problems we're facing because of this. The other thing I'd point out is that Jeff Sessions has made no such errors. And he's the one who I feel like is really running the Trump political operation in the sense of his his actual policy goals. Um, and nothing is going to get in the way of Jeff Sessions doing what he's doing, which is some of the most evil shit. Right. That, that Trump is responsible for. Right. Like people are going to be deported. Ice raids are going to continue ramping up the war on drugs, um, all of that stuff. Like, it's not like Trump has made such an egregious error that liberals should be celebrating, right? I mean, no. No. No, and at at a base level, it's not good when your president seems to believe that there are good Klan members. (laughs) You know, we've had that before. We've had that before. Uh, You know, a... I believe, you know, a former president of Princeton University and also a giant, giant, giant racist. W.W. I don't remember. Somebody got it. Some person would would somebody. That's him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it's also on a side note. It's funny because when people discuss like, oh, you know, well, if we're going to change the names of something, you should change the names of all the, you know, all of the buildings that are named for that president. And I'm like, done. Let's do it. Let's just like, get, get it. Get that. You know, this is the same guy who was like, oh, birth of a nation. It's all so terribly, terribly true. No, yeah. no, you're an asshole. Go away. The I'm name we're dead. dancing around, everybody, is Woodrow Wilson. So, um, and yeah, <sighs> sure. Let's get rid of that name. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm good with that, too. There, I think we yeah. can judge each historical character by their own merits. That's my position. Um, right. If you took up arms against the U.S., I think that you should probably not have a statue. That's kind of general rule. Right. And uh, I think that the point that I've, you know, I've been raising because people, you know, including Trump, have been like, well, what about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson? I'm like, what is the number one thing you think about when you think about either George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? It's probably not 
took up arms against their own country in defense of slavery. Right. Like Robert E. Lee, that's what he did. I'm sure he had delightful dinner parties and was very polite to ladies. And, you know, (laughs) I think he had pets, you know, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he had, you know, he was kind to all and except for slaves. He shared some really funny memes, I think. Um, yeah. Among his troops. So, yeah, no, um, I agree with you on that. So but let's get back to so uh, what why it's still not good. If Trump made a tactical error in doing this, why should we still be worried? OK, baseline, not good when the Trump empowers the Klan. Maybe that's right. all we need to say. I I think that at a baseline, it's almost too difficult to comprehend it, you know, Right. Like, I think the why the why I go immediately into a political calculus is that at a certain point, I'm just like, I need to I am not prepared to put myself through contemplating the fact that I live about like half a mile away from someone who thinks that the people who wish I didn't exist slash were murdered are probably also fine, polite people like that's. And it's it's also it's interesting because, you know, so many people like it's such a low bar, like it's the lowest of low bars. The easiest thing in the world to do is to condemn neo-Nazis mm-hmm. like they don't have super PACs like they're not like, no, no, you you condemn neo-Nazis and the Klan and white nationalists. That's just what you do. It's easy to do. But at a base level, it's it's interesting because people, you know, I've long argued that residential segregation is perhaps the biggest unspoken issue facing this country. Mm-hmm. And I think that you really see that from the fact, you know, it's been interesting. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. And so the guy, the terrorist murderer guy uh, in Charlottesville is from uh, Northern Kentucky, Southern Ohio. And it's interesting because all of his high school friends are like, yeah, he seemed to talk a lot about Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. He seemed kind of like racist Nazi. And I'm like, oh, maybe you should have brought that up to somebody. But, you know, whatever. Um, but it's interesting because you see like that with the but these like, people. Why won't they if they're why won't they tell on their own kind? Um, Jane, I don't know. Like, I, think I don't know. It's like, where was he radicalized? And how come when he was radicalized, his you know fellow, his colleagues didn't turn him in? That's um, exactly you know, exactly. Better stop those really guys at the border. Those questions. That's my but, uh, that's my question. That's my idea. Stop those guys. Yeah. But with Charlottesville, like you had people flying in from like Washington State and all these other places. And it's been interesting because someone, you know, a lot of these people are coming from places with black populations of like one to two percent. You know, if you're flying in from like Boise, Idaho or the outskirts of Boise or you're flying in from Montana or you're flying in from even in the suburbs of Cincinnati, like the outskirts suburbs, you're getting into places where there are. Like, you know, it's about 90 percent white, 7 percent Asian and 3 percent black. And yet you're still like black people are definitely trying to genocide us. Like, it's just it's so it's it's indicative of a country in which it's so large and diverse in such a way. But that diversity for so many people is invisible. Like many people live in places where they everyone around them looks kind of like them. And then they assume that places where people don't look like them must be bad and scary. Yes. Hell holes, I believe um, Trump once called them. Yes, exactly. And so the idea that all of these people felt 
emboldened enough to show up to something. It's interesting because people tried to make it about statues. But if you've seen any of the other Unite the Right posters, it one of them featured um, a uh, someone like hitting a Star of David with a bat. Like, this wasn't about the statues. Like, the statue was really kind of irrelevant. Like, it's not like Richard Spencer has some, like, fawning reverence for Robert E. Lee. Like, Richard Spencer has a fawning reverence for himself and food, probably, but not for Robert E. Lee. Mm. And, to, like, the idea that these people just felt so emboldened to show up. And then the, my my favorite thing, though, is that they were super surprised that people got their pictures and were like, but, you know— I'm not that guy. I'm like, yes, you are. You're the guy who flew from like Portland, Oregon to Charlottesville, Virginia to go participate in the fucking Tiki Torch Parade. Yeah, you are that guy. That is you. That's what you did. You know, like I said about like, you know, if what's the first thing you think of when you think about these people? Oh, he flew 3000 miles to go to a Tiki (laughs) Torch neo-Nazi parade. That's that's your resume. That's who you are now. That's what you did. Yeah. And there are going to be consequences. I mean, I think that that's that's actually the thing that's so galling and kind of hilarious is that they think there should be no consequences for their actions, which is something apparently they get mad with other. You know, that's one of their calls to action is there should be consequences. But for them themselves, no, no consequences. But that's it. That's what white privilege means to be able. That is the definition of white privilege to be able to go to a white supremacy (laughs) rally and keep your job. Right. Right. It doesn't get more white privilege than that, really. That about sums it up. Basically. And just like, I don't know. It's just this. This idea that this is something that is just even remotely tolerable. And just like the whataboutism on the right, where it's just like, well, there were other violent people. And I'm like, well, there were also Nazis. And I feel it's interesting that like, well, they were just, you know, they had a permit. And I'm like, one, so did the counter demonstrators. Two, if you're a Nazi and you have a permit, you're a Nazi with a permit. That's not something I need to be like, oh, well, if you've got a permit, that's okay. <laughs> and, and it just, it's interesting because, you know, I don't like to say things in the realm of like, I was an African-American. But, at, you know, just watching this as someone who is, you know, who, who has not who actually is an yeah. African American and also has spent a great deal of time studying both Nazism, the the OG Nazis, you know, the ones we beat and killed in like nineteen. We punched. We punched yep, a bunch yep, of them. There was a lot a lot of that going around. Yep. But then also neo Nazism in the sixties and seventies and eighties. And I'm like, you know, I've read the Turner Diaries and things like that. The book that is one very bad and two inspired Timothy McVeigh and any number of neo Nazis and white nationalist radicals. Like the idea, it's interesting because all these people are like, oh, well, you know, they just want to be left alone. They want this like white ethno state. And I'm like, do you know how they plan to create that? It's with murder and genocide. Like the end of the Turner Diaries is where every non white person is murdered in the world. And then the order, in quotes, takes over and rules the world. That's the end of the Turner Diaries. Uh, there's also some, they turn some Asians into zombies. Yes, there's that too. Uh, yeah, they took over the world and kill everybody. Like there is no, like the idea, and it's interesting because no, people do not, you know, if you ever have to do an interview with one of these people, just ask, like, what's the end game? Like, oh, you know, we just want a future for our people, except that future seems to involve killing everybody else. Oh, white genocide. I'm like, you know what would fix that? Having kids. 
<laughs> you know, you're like childbirth helps, but you know, you'll note that Richard Spencer is very single. <laughs> very single. Extremely but single, as they say. Because white genocide is basically like they put a black person in a Spider Man movie and that made me sad. Like uh, these are the weakest, saddest, and yet also most violent and virulent people alive. You're unique. You don't walk like everyone else, talk like everyone else, or sleep like everyone else. So why is your mattress one size fits all? Because a truly customized mattress will cost you five to $10,000 until now. Go to helixsleep.com, answer a few simple questions, and they will run a 3D biomechanical model of your body through the proprietary algorithms they developed with the help of the world's leading ergonomic and biomechanical experts. And the result is the most comfortable mattress you have ever slept on. Helix customers report a 30% improvement in overall sleep quality. And for couples, they customize each side of the mattress. Your mattress arrives at your door in about a week and shipping is completely free. And that is why everyone from GQ to Forbes is talking about Helix Sleep. You have 100 nights to try it out. And if you don't love it, they will pick it up for free and give you a full refund with no questions asked. Go to helix.com slash Anna, which is spelled A-N-A, by the way, and get $50 off your first order. That's helixsleep.com slash Anna. My name, Anna. Helixsleep.com slash Anna. I have an idea. We w- we were thinking about doing um, reader mail in every episode. Would you like to to help sure. with some reader mail? I will. So, uh, so this is one is about this weekend. Hi, Anna Marie. On Sunday night, my husband was FaceTiming with his parents who live far away. As often happens, they ended up talking about stressful topics on which my husband and I disagree with his parents. It started with healthcare, and his dad repeated a lot of right wing talking points. Eventually, the conversation moved to racism in Charlottesville. My mother-in-law, whom I love, apologized to my husband for voting for Trump and then said, I don't know. I don't know. I think she meant she didn't know about the neo-Nazis, but I don't understand how she didn't know. For the past two days, I've been mulling over her, I don't know. It's mushed up with the chant I heard at most of the Women's March here in Austin, no Trump, no KKK, no fascist USA. How could she not know? Why didn't she believe us? Why did it take the death of a white woman in Virginia for her to finally look at racism in that campaign? She also talked about how she's not a racist, but doesn't seem to think that, as a white woman, the work of rectifying racism is also her work. I don't know if there's a question here, but it's something I'm processing and wanted to share. Well, thinking about that, I think that also goes to, you know, the reason why people... When they hurt, you know, you hear a chant at the Women's March, the reason why like that didn't naturally, you know, you don't want to think this is you. No one wants to think this is you. It's interesting. um, People have been pulling some really great. um, My favorite Twitter historian, Kevin Cruz, has been pulling some great uh, primary documents of people who, you know, during the civil rights marches of the late 1950s and early 1960s, they also condemned extremists on both sides, which by which they meant the Klan, and the NAACP. And it's interesting because no one wants to think of themselves as being in support of the wrong side. You want to think that, you know, of course I'm correct. Of course I understand what's going on. Of, like, these people are being crazy. Like, 
this isn't fascism that like I don't you know, I don't really know that much about fascism, but that's not what this looks like. But I think that and that I think that's why you're starting to get all these now like fringe right wing fig- figures like Dinesh D'Souza. Well, Rush Limbaugh is not really fringe, which is unfortunate. All being like, ah, this was a false flag left wing operation. And it didn't really ever happen because it's too difficult to think that it did. Like all of this is people who are unable to acknowledge the difficulty and the pain of being responsible for something to which they do not wish to be responsible for. And so I think that, you know, the reason why it took that person's you know family member until someone died to see what was going on here is because I think in some ways, you know, that's the thing I think that a lot of people don't understand about, um, you know, how these, you know, how kind of restrictive governments or how not 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 exactly fascism, but how kind of a government controlled, like a non-democratic government works is that for most people, nothing changes. You know, if you talk about people who lived in um, Argentina under like Pinochet or under, you know, if you talk to people who lived under Ceausescu, you know, for a lot of people, nothing really changed that much. You know, it wasn't great and it was difficult. But if you put your head down and just stayed quiet, you, it nothing was really that difficult. You know, if you're on the fringes or if you're on the cultural outs, they did. You know, and that even happened in, you know, Nazi Germany up until about like 1941, 1942, in which one of the main job, one of the main focuses of kind of the Nazi propaganda mis- administration was not just creating propaganda to tell people about the war, but also keeping prop- making propaganda to keep people's minds off the war, making musical like, musicals like Lucky Kids, making like basically all these versions of American movies, but with Nazi themes and German people. And so you have films about people living in Cuba where everyone speaks German. Mm. And so but this idea that, you know, it until you see it for yourself or until it directly affects you, a lot of people won't see it. And And that's just how people are. And I just want to point out that um, for most people, however tragic you find Heather Heyer's death, however much you are moved by her mother's eulogy, however outraged you are, by Trump or by his supporters, your life probably, if you're a white person, white cis person who's relatively, you know, able to get around in the world, um, your life hasn't changed much and it still hasn't changed and it won't change. You have to be the one to change it. Like you have to be the one to get in the fight. You know, the fight is not going to come to you. Like, if you're someone like me, like a relatively well-off, white, married, cis, straight woman, the fight's not coming to me, you know? Like, right. I will be able to get uh, abortion if I need one. I will be able to get health care if I need it. I will be able to get a job probably if I need it, right? I have to make myself a part of the fight if I want to be a part of it. I think people need to recognize that. I, what... To put it in terms that I know you will appreciate, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, if you've ever wondered how you would fare in a dystopian young adult novel, like now is your chance, right? Like now is your chance to to join the good guys. Or you can just be someone who's in the background of those novels, right? You can just be one of the workers. Um, but 
it's going to have to be an active choice for, for most privileged people. You know, if you're not, fight's going to come to you. Like, Jane, you don't have a choice, right? Right. Like, no. you're, you're in it. Nope, nope. I'm it. That's, it's, it's funny because, like, I think a lot of people who follow me on Twitter do not recognize, like, especially because I talk to and write about a lot about um, conservatives and conservatism because I find it interesting. But a lot of people don't recognize, like, oh, I'm like, you know, if we want to get into, like, oh, identity politics, like, I'm a gay black woman and married. I'm, I'm like, super married, like, very much gay married. Like, we did the whole thing. Very married. I'm wearing I'm wearing rings right now. I know you've seen them. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think in some ways, for me personally, I find it, you know, I I worry sometimes that if I brought that up more, people would be like, ah, oh, well, this is, you know, you wouldn't be thinking this way if you were, you know, it, it's interesting because I think we think of like being a white person, especially a white man as being like the er identity and then everything else is like, ah, but that you just add that on, like putting cheese on something. But like, no, no, this is who I am. And obviously this is very difficult for me in that, you know, not just from a political standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint, you know, trying to explain to like trying to think about, you know, I've had nightmares recently of something happening to my parents. My parents were married for 38 years this November and are, you know, delightful and exhibit a very hilarious height difference. My mom is like four foot nine and my dad is six foot three. It's very funny to me. It's always funny to me. Um, But I I have, you know, nightmares, waking nightmares thinking about what something happening to them because some someone who was inspired by some of this did, you know, doing something like what happened to like James Byrd Jr. in the late 90s or something that like what happened in Charlottesville and just thinking because that's you know but that's that's my family that's that's me and Mm -hmm. it's it's I can't get away from it I I mean I wouldn't want to get away from it this is I'm pretty pumped about who I am as a person in a lot of ways but I can't get away from it. it is unavoidable it is unescapable that this is who I am and this is what has been set against me in many ways. And so I don't really have any choice but to stand up against it, you know? And the rest of us need to be more like Heather Heyer. She went to the fight. Right. And and it was, you know, just thinking about how, you know, she, I, loved, I loved listening to her parents talk. I mean, I actually did not love listening to her parents talk about her. They should not have ever had to do that because Heather Heyer should still be around and alive. But them talking about how, you know, even when she was a little kid, she always sought out injustices and wanted to rectify them. And she died doing so. And I think that that's something to think about that a lot of people who, you know, it's I wrote a New York Times Magazine piece um, for this past Sunday on the concept of virtue signaling and this whole idea of people saying and doing things because not because they believe them, but because they want to be seen doing or saying those things. Heather Heyer was not virtue signaling. She was virtuous. And I think that's important to remember. I think that's a good note to end our conversation on. Um, Thank you so much, Jane. Uh, Thank you so much to the person that wrote in to spark that last part of our conversation. Um, I'll say again, we're going to do reader mail uh, every week. So people who want to have their question or issue tackled by the pod and friends of the pod should write uh, with friends like pod at gmail.com. 
Jane.com. People who love what Jane has to say should follow her on Twitter at... At CJane87. The letter C, Jane, number is 87. That's when you were born, isn't it? It is. <laughs> you are young, and I love you. And I'm I'm really glad we got to talk. Um, my best to your wife. Uh, Thank you. Keep fighting the good fight. Know that, um, you know, I'm with you, and I'll, I'll be with you in whatever way I can be. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been good talking to you, Anna. How, how are you doing? Uh, given all that has happened, uh, you know, I'm okay. Again, I'm my life is not going to change much unless I make it change. Uh, I've chosen to try and make it more difficult. So I hope my life gets more difficult because Trump isn't going to make it more difficult for me. Um, I hope that I, I hope I do the right things and make it more difficult for myself. That That's how I am. That's how I'm doing, which I think is good. So we will chat again. Keep up the good work. Thank you. So I have interviewed my dad on this podcast. He's a hero of mine. And this is one of the reasons he's my hero. I had known for years that he had protested in the 60s. Uh, I kind of thought that that was maybe just what you did in the 60s. Um, Everyone protested in the 60s, right? And I don't know why it didn't occur to me until just a few years ago to ask him in more detail about it. Uh, I asked him when he had protested, and he said, um, 1962-63, which seemed on the early side, kind of, for history. So I asked him, what kind of protest was it? And he said, oh, every Saturday, uh, some other students and I would go to this organizing center and pick up signs, and then we would go to a whites-only business establishment in Fort Worth, and we would pick it. And I asked him, wait, you went to a local organizing uh, committee the student nonviolent coordinating committee. He was like, Oh yeah, that, that, I think that was it. And it came together in my head that my dad had protested with SNCC organization started by the freedom writers. And that my dad had protested and held picket signs in front of whites only establishments at a time in Texas when people were being beaten for doing that at a time when people were being called extremists for doing that. So what do you want to tell your children about what you did at this moment in history? Are you afraid of being labeled an extremist? I've said before, this moment is not about revealing who Trump is or who his supporters are. We know who he is. We know who his supporters are. I think this moment in our history is going to reveal who we are, especially us white people, I got to say. Everyone who's bothered by these events, and just bothered, because if you're a white person, you're just bothered probably, because it's not an existential threat necessarily. If you're bothered by these events, I think you need to ask yourself what you're going to do about it. What do you want the next generation to remember you for? And I want to humbly suggest that if you are a well-meaning, physically mobile, straight, cis, pretty well-off white person, the absolute lowest bar for you is are you going to physically add yourself to this movement? Are you going to make a call, 
knock on a door, go to memorial, hold a sign, hold a vigil. Are you going to honor Heather Heyer by doing what she did? Are you going to march? Are you going to move? Because it is called a movement. And a movement requires overcoming inertia. You can't be part of something if you don't add yourself to it. As I was saying with Jane, this fight is not going to come to you, probably, if you're a relatively privileged person. That is your privilege. The fight isn't coming to you. So what are you going to do? When I think about my father, I know I would still love him and honor him if he hadn't held a sign in front of a Fort Worth movie theater in 1962. But because he did, you know, I do more than just love and honor him. I want to be like him. I don't want the next generation to remember me for changing my avatar on Twitter. I want to be remembered for something that I did in the world. I want to hold a sign. I want to march. And I hope you do too. And that is it for the show. We'll be back next week. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.